So welcome everyone. This is the third in our series of podcasts produced and brought to you by Thrive London and Good Thinking. My name is Tracy Parr and I'm the Director of Transformation for Good Thinking, which is London's digital mental health and wellbeing service. This is our third recording. All of us are adapting to our new ways of life. And one of those is that we don't have proper podcasting equipment at home. So please bear with us. We've got an amazing sound engineer working with us to try and make this as clear as possible. But I would encourage you to concentrate on the content rather than the sound quality. And we will make sure that you can hear what is going to be a very interesting conversation. In this podcast, our clinical director, psychiatrist, Dr. Richard Graham, is going to be in discussion with Edward Breen, who's a musicologist from City Lit, an adult education institute in London. And they're going to explore, as you would expect, some of the ways of using music in these challenging times, but also what are the expectations of us and how are we dealing with this completely new rhythm of life? So I'm going to hand over now to Richard and Ed. Thanks very much, Tracy, And thank you, Ed, for making the time to talk with us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. What I'd like to ask first is what do you think the changes are that people in education are going to be struggling with most at the moment? I guess a lot of institutions, not all, but many are closed at the moment and are delivering seminars and learning opportunities online now. What sort of impact are you finding that's having on yourself and the students? Well, yeah, I think the first thing that struck us is the practical changes that have taken place. From a teacher's point of view, the intellectual changes are fewer because you either know your topic or you don't before you start teaching it. So we still know what Mm -hmm. we're talking about. But the manner of delivery is going to take us a moment to think about carefully to make sure we can still package it up and make it in manageable chunks and retain a sort of sense of connection to students rather than just shouting out on the internet with lots Mm. of materials and hoping they're receiving Mm -hmm. them correctly. It's the feedback loop of teaching, the conversational aspect that we need to rethink in a digital way. And that will vary, of course, from topic to topic. What you want to do if you're teaching a ceramics class is going to be incredibly different to what you want to do if you're teaching a piano class or (laughs) teaching a literature class. So um, we have to move away from the idea that there's one correct way to do teaching online and uh, start exploring other areas. That's incredibly interesting for us also in health, because we're also moving to how we can establish and maintain that feeling of connection. And I thought what you were saying about having that feedback and the sort of responsiveness that one has in the conversation or discussion. What have you learned about how to sort of use the tech in a way that kind of bridges some of the gaps that come with being online? Well, one of the first things I learned is not to replicate a lesson exactly online. Don't just try and video it Mm -hmm. and give it to people as a live stream because it doesn't need to be done all in the same moment. One of the things I'm experimenting with is what do I want to give the students in advance of a live session? What would I like them to read ready for the session? And what would I like them to do afterwards? And do I need to just do one session or two shorter sessions better with a gap in the middle where we introduce some material, we all go away and look at it, and then we regroup for a question and answer? So there are lots of different formats that I'm thinking of. And always with that feedback loop in mind, because as a teacher, I shouldn't really be thinking about my teaching. I should be looking at them thinking, are you learning something? And mm-hmm. it's that the chance to give them a moment to stop watching something on a screen and to think, okay, I've absorbed it and now I've formulated these questions and I can come back with them. So it's building that in. 
But I think what you're suggesting is also really interesting about the opportunities that come with digital then in terms of pauses, going off to undertake an activity of some sort that's different from just being glued to the screen all the time. And from what I'm understanding, that seems to increase that feeling of participation then because there's something fresh and new that comes back when everyone returns to the online environment. Oh, particularly so. In academic subjects particularly, this is great. You can build in time to absorb material before you go back to describe it. In practical subjects, it's going to be a downside because some of what piano classes do, for instance, is to feel the bite of live performance and the pressure to perform in front of Mm. a group and to do things on demand. They're honing their performance skills and suddenly they don't have an audience in the same room in front of them. They've got a camera in front of them and that's a different feeling altogether. So in some courses, it's an upside because we've finally got an excuse to build time in and slow things down for the audience. And in some courses, it's a downside Mm -hmm. because we wanted to ratchet up the pressure so they could learn to perform on demand. So strengths and weaknesses. Yes, yes. And and you make the point vividly that an audience and connecting with that audience, for good and bad, I guess, sometimes, is actually part of that live experience. And that can have an enormous impact on the performance. It's very difficult to play to an empty room. Although a lot of people are suddenly discovering they need to. I've been watching Igor Levitt, the pianist on Twitter, who's doing a live stream concert in the evenings from his home. He's one of my favourite pianists. Uh And it's really interesting to realise how differently I listen to him how differently I watch him to if I was going to a live concert. And I'd love to hear more from him about how different it is to perform to a web camera. It doesn't seem to affect him. I mean, he still manages to get lost in his performance. I wonder if it's a bit like singing in the shower. You suddenly feel free (laughs) in a different way. Yes. Well, there are many aspects to immersion, aren't there, in Mm. terms of understanding what it is that helps you get into that state of flow or creativity or I presume for someone like him just... The blend of technical expertise and somehow connecting with the composer's intentions. Yes, that's extremely interesting. It also reminds me, again, having undertaken some therapeutic work using video conferencing platforms like Skype and so on, what one often forgets is that it also enhances certain details. It struck me that certain aspects were sort of hyper-real, and I don't know with Igor Levitt whether you're seeing details that you just would not be able to see or perhaps even hear with close micing in the concert hall. But, of course, there's other aspects of being there with an audience as well, which is participation. So do you think there are other things that are sort of amplified as well as other areas that are reduced? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a path that's well explored, although we've not thought about it this way with recordings in the past, is that, of course, you're getting a great front row seat to a performance in this Mm -hmm. way. You're not looking at the back of somebody's head and watching the concert over it. So you, you get a chance to focus in on different details. But you do lose something of the communicative atmosphere that way. So there'll be new skills which we start to develop to create a live sense of performing when we're performing online, I'm sure. And we'll lose different bits of concert etiquette and explore different parts of concert etiquette to make us all feel connected as an audience. Musicians are very adaptable. I mean, music is a communicative art at its very roots. So I'm sure that they'll be looking for ways to communicate to their audience and create Mm. that live sense as they explore different streaming options. Yes, I think, again, it's very interesting because compared, say, with the dual screening that might go on where somebody's watching, I don't know, a sporting event or it may even be The X Factor or Netflix, and they'll be sort of chatting on a messaging app or even Twitter, and that can give some sort of experience of being part of an audience or community. That would be very disruptive to the experience of the musical moment. I, I do quite like the way that messaging, you know, live streaming apps offer you that facility. You can turn it on and off if you don't want to see other people's comments. But it is quite nice to 
put it on in the breaks between pieces and notice that other people are enjoying details as well in the way that you might share appreciative glances around the hall as you're applauding. There's still lots of ways to connect. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. In our drama department, we run a lot of public speaking courses. And of course, as they Mm -hmm. move online, it's actually exactly what most people are doing with their public speaking right now, moving online. So they're going to be learning their public speaking in the medium that they're going to be public speaking in. Whilst we're all in isolation like this, there won't be public speaking. It will be online public speaking. So it's a happy segue for those classes to go and explore their online skills at the moment because they're the ones that are needed right now. So I could argue Mm -hmm. that for the pianists as well, that this is actually the current state of classical music performance. So we'd be silly not to engage with it as well as a great learning tool. This is our reality. Yes, and it would be foolish for any of us to think that current performances are a simple recreation of, of the time of the composer. Orchestras, instruments, audiences would all have been very different. And so I guess everything is only as authentic as it is in the present, rather than any sort of sense of historical accuracy in its style. Or yes, I, I would hesitation. go one step further and say that music really only exists in performance in the moment. It doesn't exist in the score in the written notation it doesn't exist in a recording it exists in the actual live performance moment so live streaming is a way of exploring that and i think from our side i mean you seem to have suggested that it musical performance is a fantastic mindfulness exercise that really connects you with that moment well, and i think yes i'm really been thinking about this a lot just over the past day i've suddenly found myself listening to music with my full attention again rather than listening mm-hmm. to music in the gym on a playlist or while I'm running, or while I'm walking to work, or quickly listening to tracks um, to remind myself of which bits I want to play in a class for my students to hear. I'm suddenly sitting at home with my nice headphones on listening to a whole album, and I've accidentally Mm -hmm. rediscovered deep listening. You know, like Mm -hmm. we used to do when we were kids and we bought vinyl, and you listen to the whole thing, the whole concept album all the way through, or you listen to a whole Mm -hmm. symphony undisturbed. We've got opportunities like that again now to reconnect to favourite music and to listen again, and to listen in peace if we're lucky enough to find the corner of peace to listen in, I suppose. Yes, yes, and something about being able to take in the whole rather than the sort of, as you say, the playlist sort of uh, culture that has arisen in recent years. And I'm sure we'll all be going well, through sorry. this in different aspects of our lives, but now I'm at home, I hadn't realised how busy I'd got in my normal routine. Yes. And how many activities, enjoyable activities, I was doing on the fly, how I was enjoying coffee whilst walking, whilst listening to a podcast, whilst queuing for a bus. And to suddenly separate activities out a little bit is really important. And I'm sure that my friends in the literature field will be discovering the same thing, that they're rediscovering the joys of deep reading, quiet reading, quiet listening, reconnecting Mm -hmm. with their favourite things, cookery, all sorts of things. With that, of course, comes a great pressure that a lot of people are crowding into this space to remind us, now's a great time for deep listening. Now's a great time to reconnect with your yoga practice. And I think we have to all take a step back and think, it's okay, I don't have to do it all now. (laughs) I can enjoy these activities, you know, over a long period of time. I don't have to suddenly achieve a Zen-like state of personal practice in every aspect of my life this week whilst I'm in isolation. I think what you're saying is really interesting, Ed. And I'm really interested in what is that pressure? What drives that pressure that is making people feel they must do so many different things in this period of isolation and lockdown? Do you have any thoughts? A few things bubble to mind. I mean, there'll be different things, different aspects of pressure. The first thing is, of course, is that it's a temporary break. We're suddenly released from our commute. 
and various things. And there's a feeling that it's like being a child in a sweet shop. We've suddenly got an opportunity. We better make the most of it. What if it doesn't last? I haven't been at home for extended periods of time like this for ages, so I suddenly want to enjoy my home and my CD collection. So there's an aspect of me running towards favourite things and trying to do everything at once. There's also some more subtle aspects that, of course, I'm reading or watching advice on the news or in the newspapers. I was watching a celebrity chef teaching me how to make my own arrabbiata while I'm in isolation. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter if I never get round to doing that, really. I, I don't need to also make my own sourdough and grow my own herbs. You know, I'm not going to be a failure to society if I fail to do all of these things at once. So some of it is that subtle pressure that's general eager enthusiasm coming from people that really do want to help but it just piles layer on layer in daily life, doesn't it? I'm very anxious of that with my students to say that it's really fine if you don't get all the study done that you want to do right now. It's really fine if I don't do all the piano practice I want to do. I, mm. will, I will do enough to make sure I enjoy it. Uh, I won't set myself huge goals and then have another thing to be upset about because I didn't get that right. But the pressure is coming from several directions and it's subtle pressure. So we, it takes a while to notice you're feeling pressured, I think. Yes, and I, I think also... Being distracted can be very helpful in terms of mental health in a, in a positive way. But I think sometimes we can overdo it in terms of trying to bury that anxiety in the noise of activity. Mm. And you remind me of a lovely comment made by someone called Stanley Hall, who is often thought of as the father of psychology, a US psychologist, wrote a lot about adolescence and teenage years. And one of the things he thought all teenagers need was the right to be lazy that in that period of enormous change and turbulence, there was a need to take the pressure off and to allow for things to emerge or evolve or not, as suited that person. Yeah, we've lost that sort of, well, I have, certainly. Yeah. Speaking as a generally busy person, I've lost that lazy time. Time to start a novel, to decide halfway through I'm not enjoying it, to put it down and to pick up another one, to have enjoyable accidental discoveries, flicking through TV channels, that sort of thing. It's reconnecting with that time. The flip side of that coin is there are a lot of people out there that don't have a busy schedule for whom a period of self-isolation like this is another layer of removal from society. So they'll be coming at this yeah. from a completely different angle to me and they'll be wanting to connect more with people that they wouldn't see because, you know, they're not having a much needed break from a busy routine. They're losing just a couple of vital connections that made something, you know, were important to their life in the first place. So, you know, it's, it's very different on a case by case basis, isn't it, to how we want to react. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And as you indicate, much of what we do in life is very supportive of our mental health and well-being. And for many, that's being taken away. And it isn't simply a matter of material supplies or, or money, although, of course, those are vitally important, but actually being able to do something. And we've been thinking a lot about that and trying to help people focus on something they can do every day, which feels like something positive in their control that makes a difference to how they It was strange that yesterday so, evening I was teaching my normal city lit history classes online and I hadn't, I mean, I, I suppose I had realised, I just hadn't articulated the thought to myself how much I enjoy that, the regularity of that teaching because we all connected mm. together and it was such a slice of normal routine in the middle of an otherwise upended week so far that I, I realised once it was over how much I'd enjoyed it, just that little connection with my normal routine, how important, mm. even though it's my job, it's not my pleasure activity, it's my job. How much I really enjoy it. How lovely it was to see everybody mm. and just, you know, hear how everyone was doing. These connections are very important. And I think one of the creeping bits of anxiety through this whole situation is, is not knowing how long it will last. 
So you're not just thinking, how shall I yes. enjoy this lovely week off that's in front of me? You're thinking, should I be planting herbs now? Will I need them in future? How should I be planning? Is what, for me, is the unsettling bit. I think that's what's stopping me enjoy a little bit of unexpected solitude, is because I'm not sure if I should be doing something now to, because I should be worried about the future. Will I still be in this position in June? I don't know what advice I can offer to people for dealing with that, just to say that you're not the only person thinking it, if you are. Yes, and I think that look to the future and a capacity to plan can help us be more resilient. I think a lot of the panic buying and other related activities that grip the nation, in a sense, are understandable in terms of how does one prepare for something that is so uncertain and guidance shifts sometimes on a daily mm. basis. So it does underpin everything at the moment that you can't simply enjoy a three-week holiday or a six-week holiday. And in fact, the other thing that uh, I guess we could touch on is how confusing it is to be working from the very place where you would leave at the end of the day to go to peace and quiet or whatever. Work and home now are intertwined. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding it quite easy to work from home so far. It's a short-term project, and I work in a very noisy shared office, so I'm suddenly really enjoying the peace. I'm really enjoying spending time with my partner in the flat and things like that. That could change in a few weeks' time. <laughs> I could see. There was a very funny joke going around the internet with a little caption photograph with somebody asking their partner, could you blink more quietly? You know, I could see that we could end up, <laughs> we could end up in that zone quite quickly. We'll have to be very mindful of the way, you know, we operate in the flat in front of each other. We share the space. You know, if I decide to suddenly enjoy listening to an album that it's not at a moment that's going to be really terrible for him you know we're going to have to be really thoughtful like that yep. to navigate these waters but yeah. anybody else that's going through that they're really not going through it alone we're, we're all experiencing these same things and there's great humor out there on social media as people comment on these little patterns that are newly forming in their daily routine so i find that sort mm -hmm. of sense of shared humor about the whole thing is is wonderful it's it's what we talked about in our class last night we all have little little funny stories about how we're coping at home. That was the most wonderful experience, just to share those with everybody, really. Yes, and reduce the actual isolation in a novel way. You also sort of highlighted something for me as well, that I guess in our ordinary pre-coronavirus lives, would have had regular experiences of something fresh and new. And even with the infinite variety that comes with social media and the internet, there are many things that are going to stay very much the same for us with the four walls, aspects of our homes, our relationships. Uh, I thought came up very well in that sort of blinking mm. <laughs> too loudly sort of way that perhaps some of the things we should be doing is, is kind of, and I don't want this to be a pressure and a sort of worthy sort of endeavour for everyone, but to make sure you are trying to do some new things as well that bring surprises and, and novelty somehow into I your I think that's really well put, Richard. It's the difference between feeling you ought to be doing something new and just the reassurance of knowing you have options to do something new. I mean, yeah. I, I feel I should be getting on with some piano practice. You know, as a pianist, that's what I feel. But for yoga, it's different. I know that there's an online yoga course I can do if I want it. And I find that reassuring. doesn't mean I need to do it now. It's just on that little list of go-to yeah. things. If I start climbing the walls next week, I've got a little list of things I might like to go and explore. And I think art becomes really important to us at these times in life. There are novels I would like to read. There are films I like to watch. Even though I don't do any of it, it doesn't matter. Just knowing it's there is such a reassurance for me. A little bucket list. Not feeling pressured, but just knowing yeah. that it's all there to escape to, should I need it. I think you make a very, very important point, because we've been encouraging people 
to kind of maintain their routines. And as you described with your, your class yesterday evening, you know, that's a, a very good example of something that comforts and supports you. But if those routines become, I guess we might say, mental health obsessive or obsessional, then they become more of a prison than an opportunity to stay in touch with the things that are valuable to you. So I think in addition to adding the, the right to be lazy, perhaps it's either the right to discover or not do things that are becoming sort of too rigid as a routine. Yeah, uh, maybe that's the preparation we should be doing at the moment then, is we should be thinking about what options we have without the need to explore any of them, just to know what sort of things are available to us. In that way, I'm finding a little bit of calm. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what I'm beginning to conclude with our conversation as a helpful route for me at the moment. Yes, and I again, I, I've seen recommendations about, you know, sticking with favourite TV shows or music or whatever, but perhaps to actually dare to look elsewhere, maybe one of those invigorating human activities, perhaps different composers, different musicians, styles of music, I guess, for someone in your area, you know, could all sort of invigorate and surprise you. You just wouldn't have expected blah, blah, blah. So that strikes me as quite a useful guide at this We're point. We're having a... Little Stretch. exploration into cheesy 80s pop music at home at the moment, something I haven't <laughs> listened to for a long time. And it's sort of quite nice, you know, when you're suddenly in with your partner, you're also trapped with each other's musical tastes. So I will suddenly find out a lot more about his musical taste and he about mine too. And I'll enjoy doing that. There's, there's yeah, opportunities yeah. in all of this. So that's a, a, a lovely thought, really, that tolerance and compassion there with discovery might make for a good future. Yeah, don't ask me again in four weeks' time, but at the moment, that's where I'm at. <laughs> yes, yes, I think we won't want to revisit that. Well, as always the case in these podcasts, the time flies with so much more to think about and explore. But I think as we sort of move towards the end of this episode, I'm going to revisit one of our routines that has quickly arisen, which is to ask you some questions that would help the listeners sort of get to know you a bit better. And the first one that we, we start with is to ask if you're going into isolation or you're in lockdown and you could choose to do that with three famous or prominent people, who would you choose to have in there with you? Oh, that's a huge question, isn't it? Um, the first one, I'll probably change my mind about several times, but what springs to mind instantly is the novelist <laughs> Edmund White. I've spent years reading Edmund White's books. Uh -huh. they've, they've, they've been with me at various important stages in my life. So... I would love to have a really long dinner party conversation with Edmund White and a chat about lots of things mm -hmm. in, in his books. The second one is probably Pedro Almodovar, the Spanish filmmaker, whose works I've enjoyed mm -hmm. equally all the way through my life. And I'd love to chat to him about some of those. And maybe the Renaissance composer, William Byrd. We could sit down with a tuning fork and find out what was going on with pitch in 16th century England and sort a few historical problems out together. I'd love to talk to him. Right. So there's a sort of near scientific dimension to how music has evolved and how pitch has changed over time, and let alone the context. He it was would be lovely. Yes. I mean, it would be amazing to go and speak to somebody who was so important at a particular point of music history. And, you know, with the time machine, what do they think about the present? What can they tell me about the past? To meet each other's, yes. you know, musical lives and to talk like that would be a wonderful thing. The list is endless, really. I mean, I would also like to if I was going to be stranded on a desert island or in isolation, you know, with my good friend Roger Mullis, for instance. My friend, we go to the opera together. I know that we'll have a great chat and a great laugh if we were in isolation together. So it doesn't always have to be a famous person. 
one of your best no, friends no. work equally uh, well. Sure, I can see you're quite a disruptive figure in your <laughs> thinking, but presumably you'd check their blinking out exactly. first as well before you <laughs> let them in. Okay, so you've got your three people. What about media? Could be a book, some music, a film, I guess a recording of a play. What do you think you'd like in there with oh, you for books, that period? I think, definitely. If I had to take one, it would be Edmund White's novel, The Farewell Symphony. It's just been on my mind these past few weeks that actually that's the book I would most like to reread at the moment. It's been about 10 years since I read it, and it's, the mm. memory of it is still so vivid it's time to go back, and maybe here's my opportunity then. Yes, and that's a lovely thought again about the current opportunities of the chance to revisit some of those works, whatever type, that were so important as we were all developing and growing. And finally, Ed, what luxury do you think would help you bear the period of isolation? Luxury? Well, gin and tonic springs to mind instantly. But I think <laughs> on a longer-term yeah. basis, I would like a nice piano for isolation. I've got a little digital mm -hmm. piano to practice on, but a really luxurious Steinway Model D would get me sitting at the piano. From, I could see myself losing hours and hours in enjoyable practice. We've got mm -hmm. a lovely one at college, and now and again, I can get a quiet half an hour's practice on there when no one else is using it. and It's a completely different experience. It would be wonderful to have something like that. What would you be playing most of the time? I think I would finally think? learn the Bach English suites properly. Bach on a piano is, right. a, is a guilty pleasure of mine as opposed to Bach on a harpsichord. Enjoy it so uh -huh. much. Um, I've been listening to Glenn Gould's recordings of those all the way through my life, and, and I've never tried to play them myself, so uh -huh. maybe I would enjoy taking them on as a project. I mean, there's always the worry that, of course, I'll just end up wishing I wasn't playing them and I was hearing Glenn Gould play them, but I think I would enjoy the long-term project. Yes, and again, it strikes me that sort of connection between music and mindfulness, or as if playing that music would almost be a form of meditation in its own There's life. a lovely thing about practising when there's no performance at the end of it. Practice for practice's sake is the sort of ultimate mindful thing for me. Really, it's wonderful just to play the piano, mm. just to simply be able to play a piece, mm. not to make money from it, not to play to anybody mm. else, but just to explore it and just to find out what makes it tick. And to have time to do that in isolation on a nice instrument with a great work like those suites would be what I would like to do to relax, it would be my solution. Thank you very much indeed, Ed. I guess it would be helpful for all our listeners to think not just about what is the right way for you to relax, but what it is for them that gives them that moment of peace and sort of connection with something that is important to them and perhaps has been through most of their lives. It was really lovely to talk so to you. Thank you for your time.